Welcome to the Blue Collar Experts Podcast. My name is Todd Wall, and we recognize that the marketplace is more crowded than it ever has been in human history. We use the principle of if it is true there, then it is true here to find what is working in different contexts and apply it to your business. Hey everybody, this is Todd Wall. Welcome to Blue Collar Experts. Today, I've got a, a guest that I'm excited to really flesh out a, a, a really a role you may, be, may have never ever heard before, but you know in construction, you know, the, the budget can get out of, out of hand just as quick as, as anything. You need, as a business owner, an advocate who's on your, on your side, especially in the concrete industry. Today, let me bring him on now. Today, I've got Chris Bennett with Bennett Build Consultancy. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Todd. Thank you. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very good. It's, you know, we, we got to chat a little bit before we, we started recording here. I'm really excited about this because I get excited about a good cause. And, you know, tell me more about this consultancy because I had never thought about this role before. And just, you know, how construction costs can just get blown out of proportion at a moment's notice. So tell me the role that you really play as a concrete consultant in really helping and defending the business owners. Sure. Um, gosh, great questions. Um, and, and, and it is a necessity. Uh, I, I think a lot of people aren't aware just how lucrative concrete contracts can be. Uh, I think there's certainly some proof of this, as you see, uh, where historically builders haven't been picking up the concrete contracts. You know, there would be a specific prime concrete contractor, right? That would, that would pick up that scope. And in the last, uh, eight years or so, you see more and more of these builders, uh, self-performing the concrete. And, and there's a lot of good reasons to have that as well. Hang on, self-performing. What is, what is self-performing? What do you mean by that? Well, so self-performing sounds like it should be, we're going to take care and install the concrete um, and bear that ultimate responsibility ourselves. And while the latter part might be true where that ultimate responsibility is there, many times, uh, you're still going to subcontract that out to a prime. Um, and, uh, and so self-perform, uh, is and isn't what it sounds like. And we become involved at a project, um, to help oversee the initial documents through design development, schematic design, construction documents, and then helping oversee installation to make sure that benchmarks are hit. Um, to make sure that substitutions uh, are not happening. And uh, the documents, both the drawings and the specifications, are used um, as wayfinding, as they should be, to achieve design intent. So the, the context that I think most of us are familiar with is, you know, like when a person is just building a house, you've got a general contractor that has a whole bunch of subs underneath it. Are you sort of the you're not a general contractor, but that go between, between the owner and, and the, the concrete 
provider or a contractor? Um, yes, but we'll work with the entire project team. So engineering, the architects, interior designers, and make sure that everybody's ideas, uh, the renderings are all falling into number one, something quantifiable, and then number two, something achievable. And then enforcing that process throughout the, uh, throughout the execution of the facility. So you really represent that owner in, in making sure the big picture is seen, all the little, all the little pieces are working together. And sure. uh, would, that, would that be a fair assessment of it? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly um, when it's easy to view a budget, say a concrete budget, and an Excel spreadsheet, sort of like line item by line item sort of uh, way, you can lose sight of the bigger picture. And you can actually end up saving money by doing uh, spending a little more earlier on, certainly with curing, flat work finishing, um, and not have to go back and have as many mitigation issues and change orders. It all depends. So we help with the the minutia, sort of speak, the details, but keeping in mind that bigger picture. So what would you say is, I mean, so, you know, some people talk about having superpower, their, you know, their special skill. So as you come into these big projects and you do some really, really big projects, like you just finished a really large project in San Francisco. Um, and so you, you don't just, you know, you're not just doing, you know, working with a concrete pad on someone's barbecue, you're doing really large scale stuff. Is that right? Sure. Um, we're working on a number of, uh, larger commercial projects. Some of them high profile, uh, all of them very important. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I will say this though, what, you know, the basics, the fundamentals, what works good for the, the pad underneath the barbecue work the same, whether you're, you know, 42 decks up, uh, above San Francisco, or you're trying to have, you know, more of a logistics warehouse facility. Um, uh, the basics are, are always going to save you in the end. That that's, that's interesting to me because, you know, some business owners, you know, you may think concrete's concrete. I, you know, my GC can handle that part, but you're talking about coordinating with architects and in all these different in, integrations that, you know, that a lot of stuff that I've, I've never even personally heard of before and much less a business owner. Now, I mean, it's just talking about handling the complexity of a very complex project in so many situations. So in how is it, what, what makes you so unique? Uh, you know, honestly, Chris, one of the things I would really like to bring out and talk about is first of all, the your origin of what your, your skill set you said was found in your service to the military uh, in cryptology and studying of languages, how is it that that really impacts this complex environment? Sure. Uh, gosh, great question. Um, and the, the comparison is this, uh, whether you're talking about a sea lane or whether you're talking about a project, you have different actors intimately uh, interested 
in that ceiling or that project. All of them have different expectations, uh, different approaches, and wildly, sometimes wildly different ideas on what a good outcome um, might be. Everybody has their own colloquial language uh, or even shorthand. Um, and the, the same can be said with designers. The same can be said with constructors um, uh, and certainly owners. Shoot, even on the designs between your engineering uh, and architecture, you'll have people saying I identical things but using different language. And this will ultimately lead to uh, uh, that and probably some risk management considerations. Uh, to some very common redundancies uh, with multiple applications of uh, different curing seals and silicates, things like that. So an owner will end up paying for something, you know, two or three times when once, once was probably good enough. Um, and, and then ultimately a lot of the language, um, even in very, very good specifications, uh, they'll have, let's assume that all the right reference standards are being used, whether it's cold weather concrete, whether it's wind protection uh, or flat work finishing. And when you, you look up the definitions in a lot of these reference standards, uh, even within ACI, right, the holy grail for concrete, uh, at least in North America, many parts of the world, a lot of the definitions are, uh, goes back to one of my, you know, favorite forms of, of Chinese sentences, the verb object, where the definition isn't actually giving you something quantifiable, which can be uh, either legally protecting the contractor uh, or the owner of the design teams, but it's usually just a verb description of what the activity was supposed to be. And that's fine until you start arguing about is somebody remobilizing or not and who's paying for it? And so, uh, like any good, you know, dictionary between a couple of languages, um, we sort of on a per project basis, the first thing we do is make sure that everybody is using the same language, that everything is easily quantifiable. And then it just, it reduces the stress. It reduces the RFIs. It reduces the erroneous change orders and substitutions and turns it uh, particularly around time for mock-ups into almost a continuing education uh, activity versus um, everybody just kind of staring at each other going, why don't you understand me? You know, and so that's, primarily, you know, it's not all we do, but I think that's the fundamental is getting everybody to use this same language in a project. So Chris, so, so are, you're saving the owner from having to be in these complex meetings, correct? Um, they're certainly welcome to be there, uh, if they would, if they would like to, uh, and but, often, and generally... but, uh, uh, well, I mean, th and that's, that's a hard question, you know, there are many good reasons why an owner should be there, but for some of the day-to-day -day stuff in uh, protecting their risk, uh, reducing their risk and having their yeah. interest in mind, we can do a lot of that, certainly. I love, uh, and cir circling back to the, the linguistics, because uh, you're, you're, so, you're so right, everyone's got their own agenda. 
everyone's got their own margins. Every contractor has their own margins. Every, every subcontractor has, you know, everyone is out to put more money in their own pocket. That's just, that's and how we're designed. That's capitalism. That's just the way it is. And so I, it's almost like this, your background in, uh, in language almost it helps you keep the story, the story and keep the main thing, the main thing. And so that, you know, you're not having all these offshoots is, am I, am I hearing that correctly? Sure. That's a big part of it. And, um, and, and design teams, engineering teams, the builder, everybody has contingencies as part of the overall budget and they want to hold on to those too. Um, and, and we want those folks to hold on to them as well. And we don't want contractors remobilizing, um, and, uh, and people paying money. We want things to be delivered on time and we want them to be built well, uh, and one of the ways you can do that is, uh, obviously, you know, the carrot approach, which is having clear documents and clear definitions, uh, of what the expectations are versus a lot of what you see is pretty kind of, uh, as my, my good friend, uh, Bill would say loosey goosey concrete, concrete language, um, uh, and then the stick part, of course, is then enforcing that. I like I like that picture of the carrot, the carrot and the stick. Yeah, so have both, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just it's important to understand human nature. That's just the those are the just the naturally the things that that drive us. Um. So what what is what? Just as an offshoot. I mean, because this is an, this is a very unique business, obviously very critical business, especially when these large complex projects, what, what is it the thing that really gets you excited, uh, about the role that you play within, within these complex situations? What's your favorite? What's, what really gets you up in the morning go, I'm excited. I get to do this. Concrete. Um, Number one, it, it, to make good concrete. And that seems uh, at first like an overly simple answer. But in North America, particularly North America, we've gotten very used to accepting pretty poor quality concrete as, as normal. We, you know, to the point where it's, it's almost a joke, right? It's, there are two types of concrete. You know, it's either cracked or it's going to crack. Um, and you have these beautiful facilities, um, just with just horrible concrete with crazing and curling and map cracking. And people have this expectation where you're not going to get concrete right. The first time there's this expectation that something is going to go wrong. You've got to make allowances for that and you're going to have to mitigate it. Uh, there is a you know, a project out in the Northeast, 4 million square foot project. And six, seven months, seven months after um, it was poured and placed, it was out of FFFL, your floor flatness and levelness tolerances. And, uh, and I got a contractor that called me up who was trying to sell me on this, uh, specifying their floor flattening grinding system. And he was just so happy because they made an absolute fortune, you know, regrinding 4 million square feet, 4 
million square feet of concrete, which could have been, which should have been flat and level and met tolerances to begin with. And so the thing that I like is taking something which is arguably complex and simplifying it and, and making that concrete not only better, less permeable and stronger, but doing so in less budget and usually giving a few weeks back of flexibility on the schedule. Um, and that'll usually make you friends with uh, the builder too, who's like, oh, you know, we don't need anybody else's ideas here. We don't need any extra input. We're the best at this. One thing I've learned, anybody with a concrete contract, they're always the best. They've always been doing it forever. And, and then you go and look what, at what you do and they're still, you know, surface curing with, you know, silicates from the 1950s. And, uh, you know, uh, it just, they don't know how to protect floors. There's, you know, ram board all over the place. And when they want, you know, $4 a square foot to fix patch and repair. And you're like, oh, if you would have spent, you know, $2 a square foot, you know, to properly protect the floor, we would have this discussion about $4 a square, square foot to fix it. So, so, hey, Chris, so you mentioned the, the surface curing. So yeah. educate me a little bit. What is internal curing of concrete? Well, actually, what is that? Because I don't think the common person is even aware of that. So, well, they are and they're not. Um, a lot of uh, classical Roman concrete could be considered uh, internally cured concrete. And then in more modern times, uh, internally curing is almost as old as uh, uh, Portland cement-based hydraulic cement uh, concrete. Um, originally used with uh, lightweight aggregates, shale, um, clays, they would pre-wet them and then throw them into the mix. And so while your, your concrete system is undergoing hydrolysis and curing, uh, if it needed more water, it would draw from that additional water that you had put in through, uh, these lightweight aggregates. And, uh, there are a number of, of great reasons, uh, why it worked well, um, uh, and the number one is, you know, cement uh, and water in the appropriate, you know, proportions make really strong concrete. That's how you get your calcium silicate hydrate. And uh, it works so well, in fact, that during the steel shortages of World War I, World War II, the, uh, I don't know if it was only the U.S. Navy, but I know at least the U.S. Navy was making some of the holes of their transport ships uh, and other vessels out of concrete so that they would, uh, you know, because of the price of steel and steel was going to so many other things at, at those volatile times. Um, and you still have concrete uh, pleasure craft, you know, smaller boats and stuff being made. And then there are a lot of departments of transportation that have historically used internal curing for infrastructure. Uh, related work again, because it creates lower permeability, really high strength concrete. Um, what we have been doing, um, is primarily colloidal silica based, uh, liquid admixtures or topical applications, uh, earlier on since 2013, 2014. And, uh, and, and it's, it sounds exactly like what it is instead of 
trying to have surface water um, curing usually really only that top layer, or at least uh, trying to stop the evaporation through different curing membranes, curing compounds, blankets, visqueen, uh, things like that. You have concrete that is curing from the inside out. Uh, with any of these uh, colloidal silica, nanosilica based admixtures, you have silica, right? Sand, really, really small sand uh, that bonds to the cement grains, but it brings with it a little gel of water. And so anytime that cement feels a little thirsty, it doesn't have to go searching in the concrete. You have a lot less volume change, mass change, uh, less differential curing because it can just pull from that supply of H2O that's, that's super handy. Um, hey, then, Chris, so, yeah. so here's something that popped in my head, and uh, maybe this is just the philosopher in me, but I, one of the things I really love about what you said is, one, your main role is to make sure the foundation is correct. And then you talk about the different types of concrete. And if you, if you try to, the surface level, if you just try to cure it from the surface level, you're not going to get a really solid foundation. It's something that has to cure from the inside out. And that's true for us as individuals as well, isn't it, Chris? I mean, sure, you have to have that. If it was enough to just put, you know, hand lotion all over our bodies to stay hydrated, you know, that would be great. It'd be a little weird. <laughs> and there's probably people with those fetishes, you know, let's be honest, but, but you're right. I get your point. But I mean, growth yeah. has to come from the inside out, doesn't it? Yeah. And a lot of times what you'll see, particularly in flat work, uh, one of the reasons why, you know, these poor folks, this project team had to, you know, mow down 4 million square foot feet of slab is because with, with surface curing, you invariably get differential curing. The top layer, which is making physical contact with membranes of whatever type, are going to mm -hmm. cure at a different rate than the part of the concrete uh, that isn't. And so they cure at different rates. So what happens if you have a system where your concrete is curing at the same rate, where temperature, humidity, everything is more normalized throughout the entire matrix? You get less movement, less volume change. So that's less cracking, less curling, less undulation, less, less schedule time, you know, putzing around trying to fix things uh, that should already be uh, taken care of. All right. So, Chris, I want to set you up on something here. Okay. So we hear the news. We're hearing all over the place, low carbon this, low carbon that. Uh, I mean, it's permeating everything from should we drive electric cars versus gasoline cars to just our carbon footprints as people, that's also impacting the concrete industry. I want to set you up now. Chris, what is your opinion on low-carbon concrete? Um, I think low-carbon concrete is a fantastic idea. Anytime that um, you can leave the planet, or as my father would say growing up, anytime you can leave the campsite, a little nicer than you found it, that is the direction you should be heading. 
uh, or infor- unfortunately, there are a lot of unintended consequences that were seen as a result of a knee-jerk reaction to get in and dramatically change the material nature of concrete um, without updating curing at all. And the material changes are a few examples using Portland limestone cement instead of straight Portland cement. Portland limestone cement is not the same as regular Portland cement. So the behavior is going to be different. Curing is going to be different. How they hydrate, the workability, finishability are going to be different. Uh, Taking out massive amounts of cement and replacing it with of any variety of dryad pozzolan, slag, fly ash, silica fume, those have different water demands. They have different alkalinity. People aren't taking this into account. Uh, so what's, what's the drawback of what people are, I guess, I'd say it's not even traditional at this point. What's the drawback of what pe- most people are using as low carbon concrete? Sure. Well, so if, if you take out cement, then you're going to have less reactivity, right? The water has less of its, its friend's cement to create calcium silicate hydrate. So you've got delayed day of strength or longer curing schedules. And we're seeing, you know, if you're going to remove significant, significant amounts of cement, now instead of a, you know, 14 or 28 day sort of curing schedule, now we're looking at 56 day curing schedules. So you just told the owner, hey, we can be greener, but your construction loan, your operating costs, your insurance, um, you know, all the stacked lighting and whatever we're going to be pulling from the grid, like all of your costs have got to go up, you know, for another month, you know, just to start this conversation. Um, and, and then some of the other problems with it are, uh, uh, you know, slag is a great product, um, not only for reducing uh, uh, embodied carbon, but there are some uh, fantastic uh, attributes, behavioral uh, per- performance uh, aspects that can add to concrete, but it's all dependent on the first reactions between cement and water. Uh, it's also highly alkaline, which means the temperature can go pretty high, uh, inside the concrete. And once concrete gets too hot, you quit making calcium silicate hydrate. You quit. And so you leave all these pores and channels, this high porosity concrete. And this is expressed in a lot of different ways. Um, and number one, they're very visual. They're aesthetically not pleasing, you know, dry shrinkage cracks, um, or pitting and things like that. So ultimately the concrete can't may not be as, as solid, as, as durable, as, as hard as obviously as traditional method, but you said there is an alternative, that other type of, of Portland. So, uh, well, so there, there's, there are a number of pro, I guess the, the short way to, to summarize it, simply replacing the ingredients in your cake isn't enough. It's, it's too simplistic, number one. And when you change those ingredients in your concrete, you now have a different material. It's not the same as the concrete two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. And, and there isn't enough respect to that. And so what you're seeing uh, manifesting on the job site is higher porosity, more, more cracking, more dry shrinkage cracking concrete uh, because the water demands aren't being met. 
Um, and that's because there's no water because people are not only taking out those ingredients, but they're using these really old curing techniques that have been around in, in some cases for like a hundred years. Um, and so it's, it's hard to be real high tech with your low carbon initiatives and really take full advantage, uh, of the low carbon, um, uh, paradigm we kind of have in front of us because we use these older curing methods and what it invariably does the first, it makes it cost prohibitive, um, by not only extending that schedule, but because you have, you have to now count on, uh, your contingency being, contingencies being used up to patch and repair what should have been perfectly good concrete, um, in the first place, you know, come back with self levelers and all this type of stuff when when you could just adjust your curing as you adjust your ingredients, right? So that you're doing it in tandem um, and you get the best of both worlds. So let's say you had the perfect project and the, the, the owner says, hey, we, we want to be low carbon. And so how do you become as low carbon as possible in making your recommendations without going to that extreme where it becomes a in many cases, an inferior product. You, well, you have to update mm -hmm. your curing. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about internal curing. Um, and for the same reasons that you get the low permeability, uh, whether you're using uh, liquid silica admixtures combined with cellulose fibers, which are great uh, for uh, water properties inside your concrete, making allowances for those increased water demands, the increased alkalinity and temperature demands, that is usually enough to allow you to have whatever, uh, usual, what, almost whatever amount of cement reduction you'd like to pull from the mix, but do so in a more standard, you know, 14 to 28 day timeframe. Uh, so you don't have to pay for, you know, that additional month of schedule and then also having lower permeability concrete so less that you're going to have to if any that you're going to have to patch and repair during initial construction you know it's and again it goes back to my comment earlier where we almost accept that you know bad concrete is is inevitable we're so used to having to mitigate concrete during initial construction that we think that's normal and it's not normal to fix something you just made. That doesn't make sense in any other market that I'm aware of. You know, you don't go around breaking windows after you install them and go, oh, this is successful. Look at that. Um, but, but for concrete, we do. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's, I think, the big advantage that we have is, like, arguably, we could make low-carbon concrete, um, and we do help people do that for less money for less schedule than people make traditional concrete. That's how you have change in the market is when you can make it not only faster and less money, but it's actually better. So, you know, I have no problem with, with the low carbon benchmarks, but uh, um, as is to be expected, right? Right out the finishing gate, or right out the start gate, when you're, when you're trying to achieve these goals, um, you know, you, you got to, to learn and kind of hobble around a little bit, make some mistakes. Um, yeah. So, so Chris, so Bennett build is, it's, it's known as being one of the oldest 
the oldest consultancies within internal curing. Is, is that, would that be a fair label that you guys have? Uh, yes, I'm sure. You know, I mean, I, I can't say somebody in, in Italy or, you know, somewhere else that, that yeah. has been, you know, it's, it's hard to say with a hundred percent certainty. Uh, but yes, we're a little unique in that we were early adopters, uh, um, uh, of internal curing commercially saw that potential for eliminating, um, uh, other mobilizations, uh, lots of other products and things like that. And, uh, and so the, the great thing, uh, well, the bad thing about being an early adopter is you're new. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of mistakes that need to be made, a lot of lessons learned, but, you know, here, uh, you know, closing in almost, you know, uh, coming up on 10 years later, all of the has all of that has transferred into knowledge and experience. So, you know, we're very efficient at that, um, and can help project teams, you know, skip, you know, skip the eight, nine years uh, of trouble and just you know, get good at it immediately and start seeing the cost savings, start seeing the carbon uh, and schedule savings immediately. So uh, Chris, I want to play a game with you that, that I like to play because no one likes to brag on themselves. And, and you, you say, uh, hey, tell me why you're great and people blush or give you, a, you know, a, a baloney answer. Tell me, Chris, what is it, some of your favorite clients? Mm. Why do they brag about you? What is it that they say that, that as to why they would refer you to somebody else? Why do they say people need to work with, uh, with Bennett Bills? Um, for your owners, uh, it's and your developers, project management teams, and, and design teams. Uh, it comes down to two things, quality of the outcome. And so when you hear things like, wow, this is, this is the best concrete we have ever had on any project and somebody, you know, maybe 20, 30 years, your senior, you know, the VP of, of construction or, or project management, uh, who is arguably not even argue has probably been on more projects than you have. When they tell you things like that, um, that'll, that'll make you sit down, um, and appreciate that, uh, when you have zero change orders on a project and, uh, and you have people coming back saying, thank you. You know, uh, I, one guy said, you know, he calls me the concrete whisperer. This is his title to me, not mine given. Um, and, and, uh, he introduced me, uh, into a meeting with, uh, his offices, um, uh, in Texas and, uh, and he goes, you know, I don't like consultancies and I, and I hate consultants. All of you know this, but I love Bennett build. And you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and so when you, when you help people have a better outcome, when you uh, essentially at the end of the day, when you're help them make more money on their projects by holding on to those contingencies, by not, not having their billable hours eaten up by, you know, RFIs and three weeks of meetings, deciding who's going to pay for what, uh, it's just a smoother process. And I, I think that's most of the people, um, you know, we get a lot of repeat business. That's why the two things quality and, and the cost savings.
I had no idea I was, I was talking to the concrete whisperer. And I, I mean, just I mean, the reviews, that, you know, as a, as a business owner, business owner to business owner, I mean, that's just one of the biggest compliments we get. When someone leaves a Google review or tell, or gives us a compliment in front of like their coworkers like that. So, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's the biggest social proof. That's the biggest testimony anybody can ever, ever receive. So that's a huge compliment. I, I mean, that's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that, Chris. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thank you. And Chris, thank you for this time. I'm going to go ahead and wrap, wrap things up at this point, but, uh, I mean, this has been enlightening to me, just learning, you know, not only this, this with the trend of low carbon and what's another alternative way of handling that to, you know, you educating me on internal curing versus surface curing and, and even this role of helping to make sure, make sure that the story is moving from point A to point B and not all those extra margins and, and fats not added into the project and just the way you're protecting those business owners, man, th thank you for what you're doing. It, it really goes back to the years you spent serving our country. Again, thank you for that, serving our country. But then, man, a serviceman is still doing that same thing, serving a cause that's really making an impact. So, Chris, thank you for making the impact that, you're, that you are. Oh, thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. And uh, uh, safe safe uh travels to your son as well as he's coming back home i know earlier before uh the podcast today you mentioned that uh he's a shipmate of mine on active duty in harm's way and so god bless and uh, and thank him for his service too absolutely no one knows the the sacrifice that uh, servicemen actually make on a day-to-day -day basis the long long hours that they actually put in and the toll that they play, even uh, that they pay, even after they leave the service, and yeah. so uh, yeah, we everyone must tip their hat and pay for a meal if that's all that they get the chance to do every time they see a serviceman. So again, Chris, thanks for the time, and I look forward to talking to you down the road. Absolutely, thanks so much. Have a good one. <laughs>